Welcome to the Nonprofit Hero Factory, a weekly live video broadcast and podcast where we'll be helping nonprofit leaders and innovators create more heroes for their cause and a better world for all of us. Ding. Ding. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Uh, welcome to episode 11 of the Nonprofit Hero Factory broadcast, podcast, however you're consuming this content. And if you're liking it, please go ahead and subscribe, leave us a review. We really appreciate all your thoughts and feedback so we could keep making the show better and serving more nonprofits with the information that they're really interested in. Without spending too much time talking about uh, the show t- in general, let's talk about Q. So my guest today is Quentin Q. Phipps. He prefers to uh, be called Q. Uh, He serves as Middletown, Connecticut's 100th district representative in the Connecticut State Assembly, General Assembly, I think it is. He can correct me. He's also a Bryant University graduate and earned a master's of public administration from Villanova University. Q worked in community banking and was the executive director of the Middletown Downtown Business District before he became a rep. He now serves as a the Director of Advocacy and Policy for the Excellence Community Schools. In this role, he builds capacity and supports families through advocacy, community, organizing, and strategic partnering. I think Q is going to be a fantastic guest because he's at that intersection, or rather on both sides of both government and nonprofit work. Uh, he describes his superpower as believing in the empowerment of disenfranchised, beginning with the recognition of their intrinsic social, political, economic, and intellectual capital. I'm going to let him unwrap that a little bit for us as we bring Q onto the show. Hey, Q. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I was like wicked excited. I'm really excited to have you on. I know you've got a lot of uh, fascinating perspectives on all these things and and value to drop on on all of our listeners. So thanks so much for being here today. Uh, Can you let's start off with just sharing your story a little bit. How did you get to be both director of advocacy and policy and a Connecticut state rep combination that I don't think a lot of people in the world hold? Yeah, so I'll I'll start from the beginning. So my family is a family that has always been involved in the faith community. So grandma was a deaconess, grandpa was a deacon, mom's a missionary, godmother's a missionary. All, it's probably easier to explain which aunts and uncles are deacon and deaconesses than which ones are. So um, serving through the church or just serving your community was always just part of who we are. My mom was also a mental health worker for the state of Connecticut for 30 plus years. And she served those with schizophrenia and depression and anxiety and was folks that really had uh, tremendous amounts of need. Um, so seeing her service to the community uh, was something that always inspired me for what um, I thought I wanted to do. And so, and thanks for sharing my bio. So I went to Bryan University, studied marketing, and I wanted, I knew I wanted to sell something, whether it's an idea or a product. Um, the idea of like getting information out and getting folks to buy in or invest was something that I cared deeply about. Um, but my minor was always in political science. So I was in student government all the way from literally sixth grade all the way up until uh, graduation in, in college. Um, and knew that I think service through government and public administration was something that would happen at one point or another. Um, in graduating, I went to, uh, was an inroads alum, which is a top 10 internship in the nation at the time, worked for a bank um, and did banking for about 10 years. And in that time uh, realized that I didn't really like the finance part and the banking part, but I loved the community part. I loved going to the, the chamber meetings. I loved uh, volunteering on nonprofit boards. I loved the event planning. I loved um, seeing our constituents and customers like grow their like buy their first home or save for the wedding. 
that was the fun part. That was the part that really made you want to wake up and get the um, like get up out of bed and do the work. All the other stuff, all the banking and finance, that was that was the boring part. <clears throat> so I finally said, okay, let's make the switch um, and let's really focus on the the part that you love, the part that that drives your soul. Um, so I switched to, to working for the, the downtown business district, which was an awesome opportunity. We created the first Middletown Restaurant Week and did beautification projects. But during that time, we, um, or I, uh, was able to be a volunteer and a mentor at our local uh, community school, um, elementary school, uh, kindergarten through fifth grade. And I had my little buddy, um, Marcus. And I saw Marcus... Um, deal with and suffer through and have to work through and, and overcome many of the same challenges in education that I had as a as a student. And he reminded me of myself, but didn't have the same sort of supports like my mom. Um, so he couldn't he couldn't do it by himself and his family wasn't there to, to uh, help him overcome it. And it was painful, painful to watch, along with seeing the teachers um, want to help, but not really understanding this young boy's problems and the institutional and structural and systemic reasons of why he was struggling. Um, so that's when it was time to really make that switch to education, which is how I found Excellence Community Schools. So Excellence Community Schools is a charter management organization. We have several schools in New York, one school here in Connecticut, and our school district here in Connecticut is the number one performing uh, school district in the entire state, which I'm really, really proud about. Um, but when we joined, our school has a model that argues that you can't just have a place for scholarly achievement um, if the outside environment isn't there. And if you don't have a community that supports your school, and by community, we mean our parents and families. We mean um, grandparents, aunts and uncles. We mean the church next door and the funeral home across the street and the restaurants and everyone. If everyone's not involved and our parents and families and students can't get the outside resource that they need in order to um, thrive, then I can't expect the child to do well on a test. That's just not a fair expectation. Um, so my uh, boss and uh, Dr. Charlene Reed, and if you ever get a chance to really be impressed by someone, please, she's like literally the leading educator um, in early elementary education in the entire country. Um, she was looking for someone that can combine <clears throat> two different skills. One, was um, knowing how to navigate government structures. And I was the city treasurer and a planning and zoning commissioner. I was former president of Connecticut Young Democrats. So had tons of business, I mean, uh, government relationships, um, but also really understood organizing. And at the end of the day, I've, uh, the organizing piece is really who I am and um, what is, I think, my calling. Okay. So then, how, but how does that combine with the Connecticut state rep portion of things? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, so one of the things that I think nonprofits really have to um, kind of switch how they work um, is that we should work ourselves out of a job, right? At some point, um, like the American Council, uh, Cancer Society should have done enough research, raised enough money that we cure cancer and they no longer have a job to do. And now it's time to do the next work, right? Or right. saying, I love Habitat for Humanity. Um, so I think there's two ways to end homelessness. One, building homes, which is something that they do very, very well at. Like if you want to make someone not homeless, you give them a home. That makes a lot of sense. But I think you also have to work on the systemic issues behind the scenes, right? Of like, how do they get into a place where um, where for all of us, why housing is so expensive. Like why, we have to talk about energy costs. We have to talk about um, lack of access to banking. And we have to talk about the fact that folks don't make enough money. 
all these sort of systemic reasons of why it's so hard to be able to own a home is going to be part of the process. So from my from the very beginning and my mentality was my job as a parent advocate um, or as community relations manager and now the director of advocacy and policy isn't to be the advocate. Right. I'm not there to go and tell um, at the time elected officials or state reps or whoever else. Here's what our parents are going through. It was my job to teach parents how to do that work. And I knew it was time to switch when um, Melissa, who um, was was a a parent that really touched me and literally changed my life. Um, She talked about her struggles um, a lot, um, escaping uh, and overcoming um, homelessness and um, leaving New York to make sure that her child had a better chance at an education. And originally she didn't even get picked in the lottery and got pulled off the wait list. I mean, just a, 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 and just a, a true fierce champion for our school each and every time. So we were at the Capitol and we had about five or six parents. I said, okay, here's what the plan is. And Melissa said, stop. I'm going to tell you what the plan is. We're going to go see Pat Miller and then we're going to see, see Senator DeLeone. I'm not there. We're going to write the notes and then we're going to see this person and that person. Then we're going to come back, have lunch here in the cafeteria with you. You're going to pay for it. Then we're going to go work the ropes. Now the ropes are where the actual Capitol is. Um, so when you're in session, uh, the lobbyists have to stay behind the ropes for the for legal reasons, and then the legislators are on the other side, literally either in the caucus room or in the um, um, an atrium where like we actually like push the button to make the laws. And she said we're going to go work the ropes, which is actually like lobbyist talk, right? We're going to go work the ropes, and then we're going to get back on the bus and we're going to go back to Stanford. And I said, but she goes, no, Q, like Mr. Q, like we got this. I know exactly what to do. You taught me. See you later. Bye. And put the parents and left. And there was two parts to that. There was one, like the pure joy of like, yes, this is like, this is what true empowerment looks like. This is what an active, engaged, um, empowered constituent looks like. This is what everyone should have the ability to do so. And once again, this was someone that um, had was this overcoming poverty, had to over, overcome homelessness, like real struggles. Now was using the same language that a lobbyist would use. So that was like, what's going to was thrilling. And then it was like, oh crap, I worked myself out of a job. Right? <laughs> like they don't, they literally, I literally had my person tell me, I don't need you. So then there was time to say, okay, well, what's next? And I had always looked for opportunities to run and, and um, be engaged in the state capital work as a legislator. Um, Senator Matt Lesser, who was a very, very near and dear friend to mine. We started together at, in the Planning and Zoning Commission. He was running for state Senate. So the seat was going to open up. And I really wanted someone that was going to have an equity lens in the work um, that was going to put uh, social justice and racial justice at the forefront of the platform um, and really wanted to, to, to change. And I thought I was the best person and uh, God willing, a lot of luck and a lot of work. I had an amazing campaign team um, run by Devonna Dunlap, um, who's one of the leading campaign managers in the state right now and one of the best uh uh, social media and communication leaders in the state. She ran my campaign, and now I'm the I said the first uh, state representative or black state representative to represent the city of Middletown in our 200 plus year history. That is pretty phenomenal. Um, a lot to unpack in that story. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously, you have a very unique journey of your own, and and a lot of experience that that has come from being hands-on in in both sides of the of these two different sectors talk to me a little bit 
about what's going on these days. So from both the nonprofit side of things um, and the state side of things, you know, COVID has changed everything, totally. uh, at least temporarily, hopefully only temporarily, but in large parts also permanently. And then we have things like the Black Lives Matter movement right now, which is taking up uh, a lot of focus, deservedly so, uh, in, in society. Where does that put the average nonprofit in, in terms of the work that they could get done and working with government and advocacy? Okay. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna try to like bring that big question. We're gonna keep kind of narrowing it down, right? So uh, the commissioner of education, uh, uh, Cardona, who's was gonna done a, a good job. I'm I'm pretty impressed with his work. He's done decent. Um, he said in numerous conference calls and talks that. COVID and the coronavirus has brought to light a lot of the systemic inequities that our society and community has. And if we don't make changes now, we will never see changes. He then went on to say, literally five or 10 minutes afterwards, that um, in education, we have to respect home rule. And home rule is literally the reason that we have all the systemic inequities in education that we have. So we have this duality, right? I think the other thing that we say, or we've heard over and over again, is that the um, this pandemic has brought to light this inequity and um, these troubles and obstacles and challenges that it's brought to light, like folks didn't know. Yeah, I don't know about you, but all of us in the nonprofit community have been saying this for years. All of us, um, I would say in the, in the Black community that have seen this systemic oppression have been saying it for years. Um, I know a lot of my LGBTQ um, plus folks have been saying that this is the, the the world is not right. It's not it's not I don't feel safe all the time. So over and over and over again that we have these folks that are saying that we didn't know. But now we know. Yeah. So now it's going to come to the, the question of are we actually going to do what it takes to make the change that we all know is needed? Um, because we found out in this in this pandemic that we are all very close to. Um, being in like, once again, like real, either financial trouble, economic trouble, um, physical health. I mean, I, I have had several friends that were young pass from the COVID virus fairly early in this, um, it's an, in the, in the pandemic. Um, so we were all, once again, a, a shot away from um, literal death. Um, as a, as a state rep, I mean, I can't even count how many people have said like they need like they need this unemployment to go through so they can put food on the table so they can stay in their homes. Now, as someone that ran not on I didn't even run on a $15 uh, minimum wage per hour. I've been saying that it should be a $25 uh, minimum wage per hour as if we um, indexed the current rate to what the rate was in the 1940s during the, uh, the, the New Deal. Uh, when we had the most prosperity ever in our entire country. Th these are the sort of things that I think we need to, to, to fight for um, on the governmental level to make sure that we are fighting for the, the systemic change. So on the nonprofit side, we have to now go back and push our, 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 our investors, our sponsors, the, those that donate to us, um, all of our constituents, and also to be frank, government support to say, okay, now that we all agree that this is a problem, since you didn't believe us before, now we now we all agree that this problem exists. 
either you believe that we are a solution to the problem, which many of us have proven over and over again that we are. So now you want to invest in us so we can actually fix the problem, or we can no longer say that we actually care about the problem. And I think that rubber is or is meeting the road at this exact moment. Um, and now is the time to really speak out, um, to be loud, to be bold, uh, to be unapologetic, um, because the truth is clear. And we are no longer going to um, speak truth to power. We are going to speak power to power. So uh, how do we do that? What's what's working? What's not working? Um, I mean, there are all kinds of, and I focus, of course, on digital technology. There are all kinds of tools out there like petitions, like, uh, you know, change.org or the ones uh, at the White House, We the People, right? Do those work? Is that what nonprofits should be doing? What What's going to work for them? So I, I believe that those that are closest to the problem are also closest to the solution. Um, so for instance, when um, I was, didn't make a lot of money, I knew the solution to my answer was to make more money. Like it was, for me, it was a very clear solution. Mm-hmm. So I also go back to Larissa Genfrido, who passed away several years ago. Um, she was a community organizer and advocate for Mark, um, an area Middletown's Arc, um, those so it helps people with mental disabilities, um, an intellectual disability, excuse me. And she helped elevate their voice, or was she wasn't speaking for folks, um, she was teaching people how to do it. And a lot of the model in which that I use um, for political advocacy or uh, used to use for political advocacy was blatantly stolen from seeing how Larissa Genfrido did it. Um, Because she was an advocate first for those with intellectual disabilities. And then she talked about her journey um, fighting cancer until she passed away. Um, And I still remember, once again, here was this fierce advocate for the community. There was a jar at the local pizza place about raising money to help her pay for her um, medical bills. And I was like, she is, and she's also a, a politician's daughter too. And here was someone that had did so much work for the community and was relatively connected was still struggling to pay bills. Like that didn't make sense to me. So how do we how do we fix this, right? It has to be about education and empowerment of your constituencies and making sure that they can speak for themselves and that they know how and that they are supported in that process and we're meeting people where they're at. So the, the number one question any nonprofit advocate can ask someone is like, how are you doing? What, like, what, what, what do you need? And then once we start off with those two questions and figuring, and so this way we can find like, here's the answer. Like if you say, I'm having trouble with housing, well, here's a solution for that, or here's possible solutions, which one sounds good to you. And then you want to work them through that um, and say, okay, well, here are some possible ways to, to solve that. We can write an email. We can make a phone call. We can go visit, right? We can invite them to our space. There's so many ways in which you can do it. What way do you want to participate? What way do you want to help? And I go back and think about our parent at my school where she was a grandmother that was really impressed with our <clears throat> music program. Now, typically, and she was, a, um, her, her main language is Spanish. So was, I, I don't speak Spanish. So I'm not, I couldn't communicate with her well. Oftentimes, and especially in education um, circles where it is very American centric, like learn English, it's like, fit into the box, right? Especially in PTAs can be some of the most vicious political spaces on the planet, right? Um, This is a parent that would not have been able to really get involved. But she was so impressed with 
the uh, music program, she hand sewed beautiful um, stage uh, curtains. If we had paid for those, they literally would have been tens of thousands of dollars. And she hand sewed them and they look absolutely gorgeous. So in seeing all of our parents as someone that can help solve a problem, um, that have natural assets and something to bring to the table, and just by simply asking, hey, how do you want to help? I think that's how we're going to really change um, the process and, and engagement um, in this work. I completely agree with you. And it is definitely about activating the community and getting each person to contribute what they can to the, to the process, to the overall cause. But I really want to know specifically, okay, I'm a nonprofit that cares about, let's say education, or let's say about arts and schools, uh, or let's say really homelessness, anything. What do I do? How do I get my cause, the attention that it deserves in terms of public policy, in terms of my, my representatives, right? What do I ask my constituents to do on, my, on our behalf? That's a, that's a good question. So there's several things that I think work. Um, and here's, here's the thing that I would do in, in no specific order. One, look on their websites or look on their Facebook pages or Instagrams. If they have their like their public personal number, who is they? I'm sorry, quick. I'm sorry, for, for, especially for if, if you're if you're doing state advocacy work, and that's the one that I have the most experience with, or even the, on local level, federal level, we'll save that for another call because it's much more complicated. And um, but it, it's still. Let me just make one quick point about the federal side because it's the same for all the sides. Even if you don't have the money that some of the uh, more affluent organizations have, like such as a national association that likes rifles, for instance, right? They have way more money than we could ever possibly have. What they don't have, no matter what their website tells you, they don't have the numbers. They don't have the numbers, they don't. We all, for the things that we care about, there are a lot more of us engaged about, about anti-poverty work, about social justice, about racial justice, about um, housing, about uh, the environment. There's way more of us that is easy to activate, as you talked about, and engage than there are them. So fight with the numbers, don't fight with the dollars. We will lose the dollar fight every single time. We will win the number one every single time. So quick, that's a quick part. So on this, on the local side and the state side, um, oftentimes people will say, we'll send emails like this, the form letters. I wouldn't recommend the form letters. Um, they're really easy to, to ignore and get past or and they often end up in, in spam files. I wouldn't recommend those. What I would recommend is if you was going to city council people, the mayor, board of education, any of your state legislators, go to their websites. Look, and it often says, it says, call me at this number or find me at this number. Use that phone number. Make the phone call. I would also recommend don't use form scripts, right? Don't read what someone else gave you. You know your own story. You know your own life. You know what you're trying to overcome. Share that. And the reason I say make a phone call is um, many, like the mayor, very few mayors read their own emails. Like they have staff. Same thing. I mean, I, I read my emails. I get most of my emails sent to me. Um, but I also have staff that takes a lot of the stuff that I just won't have the opportunity to get through because we have a part-time legislature in the state of Connecticut. If she has to just like click a button that says delete, that takes her a few seconds. If you make a phone call, now they have to pick up the phone and like talk to you and interact. Now, once again, that's a literal, it's a, it's a lot more personal. It's a personal connection. I know your name. I know where you're from. 
Um, I know what your problem is. I've, 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 we've humanized each other in a way that you can't do, or it's harder to do with an email, especially with a form letter. So pick up the phone. Now, mind you, that's going to take time. That's yeah. time that they can't do the other work. So that's already going to make, make it, it, it makes you have to make a choice. Now, what if we times that by 10? Now, mind you, most folks don't get any email. So I'll give you an example. I put my, and I'll put my personal cell phone, I'm not sure if you can see it, but I can, I'll put my personal cell phone in this right now. And I do it all the time, hoping to get phone calls. Matter of fact, I even made a second phone number because I knew my phone was going to be ringing off the hook the moment I gave out my cell phone number because I'm a state rep. Folks are going to call all the time with needs. I'm giving up the number next year because no one ever uses it. And now I'm only using the same personal number, the same one that my wife uses. So even as you have opportunities to reach out to your legislature, and it's a district of 25,000 plus, um, it doesn't even include my parents of 400. I don't get enough. I, I, I don't feel like get a lot of enough calls. So if you call, let's say you called one time, you're going to get noticed. Now, if 10 people call at this, like around the same time, staff is going to go, well, wait a second, like what's going on? Like how did, how, this is, this must be important. This is 10 people. If you get 25 or 50 people to call in one day, that means even said, even if it was, let's say it was 60 people for a minute each, that means an hour of their production was taken out. An hour of their work that they're going to have to figure out when to do somewhere else. I guarantee you by the 30th call, they're going to call the state rep or they're going to call the mayor. They're going to call the board of education, superintendent, whoever else, and say, this is important. We have to solve this now. So pick up the phone. It's like literally one of your, your strongest opportunities to do so. Um, two, if you see the public forums, what, especially now when we um, everything's on like Zoom or uh, Google Chats or Facebook Live, join those meetings. It's very, very easy. You can, I mean, you can ask anything you want. You can say whatever you want. Um, those are your times to be seen and to be heard. Um, and bring a group. Once again, if you bring just yourself, you'll be seen and be heard and someone's going to address it. If you have five or 10 people, people are going to go, okay, well, wait a minute. You're starting to, you're, you're building. Like this is, this is something big. If you bring 25 people or 50 people into a room, you will have the entire room and then your topic will be the topic du jour. And I guarantee you, you will get that solved. Um, so use your ability to organize. Um, it's really, really important. Um, I like how you talk about storytelling. So use your social media to tell your story. So folks can say, let me, if I have to follow up, what's going on? Um, I would also recommend, um, what's can you teach people like how to tell that story, right? Um, so sharing your name, using specific other name, like this don't like my child. No, this is, this is Jake and Jake is in the third grade and Jake likes the Power Rangers. Like really, it really, it has to be personalized so we can do this work together. That's how empathy works. You need to be able to really relate to someone and the, the more you could t say about them, the, the more likely someone is going to be able to connect to them. Totally. Totally. Um, I, 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 and I would say, I just say again, like the, 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 the number one thing I would say is if you're going to use an email, Make sure it's a personalized email. I would recommend not doing form letters, but every chance you can get to make a phone call or showing up, those are your best ways to get action immediately. So if I'm a nonprofit and I want to get attention to my cause, um, some of the things I could do based on what you're saying is give out phone numbers, right? Supply phone numbers based on my zip code, based on whatever to the people whose uh, attention I have a right to, to get. Mm -hmm. Secondly, 
I can maybe not script emails, but maybe structure and say, hey, can you email so-and-so and so-and-so and, -so and talk about this? Here are the talking points that exactly. you, can if you addressed and include your own personal story. I can also help uh, distribute the calendars for all of the different representatives that I and the meetings as you're talking about that are now happening virtually. So I don't even have to leave my house. I can show up on a Zoom call for my uh, city or my uh, district, whatever it might be, and get heard about the issues that, that are pressing. And the more people we can activate as an organization, the more attention we're going to get and the more we're going to take over the conversation to a degree, right? Totally. And the other thing I would say is don't be, there's nothing to be afraid of, right? They work for you. Um, you vote them in. Um, for those of us in the state legislature that have public finance, we literally need you to give us $5 to up to $100 and, and raise a certain amount of money in order to be able to run for office. This is all part of the process. So you have, you literally have all the power. The, the, the power is completely unbalanced. I know we get the, to vote later on if we win. But once we're there, if we want to continue doing the work for you, it's really a, it's a, really a partnership. And the, and the more empowered you are, and the more, more information you have, and the more closer to Rick... And the other thing is, this is what this was what builds a relationship, um, and what makes all of us stronger, right? So if you have a need and I can fulfill it, that means I'm a person of trust and a person of power and authority. That makes um, which makes you want to support me more. And if I know I can, and for me, since I do this as a calling and for service, if I can help you, that that's really what the work is about, and that's that's the sort of partnership that we want to do in collaboration and cooperation. Um, not in what's going in a sort of antagonistic way. So in terms of nonprofits taking action and doing this, are there any specific types of nonprofits and causes that are more, uh, more fitting for these types of approaches, for advocacy approaches and for effectively lobbying, if we want to use the dark side term? Mm -hmm. um, or is this really something any organization can and should be looking at and taking advantage of? I would, I think we often look at advocacy as its own separate thing, right? And I think probably because of my marketing background, looking at marketing as, once again, how do you get something from one place to the other? Is and all the steps in between. Advocacy is, I think, is kind of part of that umbrella of like how, if, we, if we're trying to get from one place to the other, at what point do we need to convince people? At what point do we need to make sure that we're all on the same page? Advocacy is about empowerment. Advocacy is about education and information and, and informed people are empowered people. Empowered people make action happen, right? Um, so this is something that all of us need to do and should do. Um, and I said, does everyone need to go to the state capitol? Maybe, possibly, yes, I would argue yes, uh, because those that are there have a lot more power in many ways. Um, but if you go to the town hall meeting, that is just as powerful. If you make the phone calls, I'm telling you, that is incredibly, incredibly powerful tool. Um, if you, uh, write on their, on their Facebook page, that is a very, very powerful tool. Everyone should do this as part of your strategy and how to get your mission accomplished because there's not a single thing because nonprofits by definition have a mission and a mission that is going to have some sort of social cause. It's very hard to overcome any of these sort of social obstacles without government help, whether it's changing a law or government um, investment. We have to be partners in this work. Um, so as such, 
it's if you are really trying to get your mission executed, you need to have that partnership with with government. You, I, I couldn't have paid you to say it better. Um, I completely agree with you. In in a couple of weeks ago, I did a, a solo show talking about uh, issues like this, and and that every organization there needs to be some level of advocacy. There can be and should be. I also talk a lot about in storytelling. We have the principles of heroes and villains. And the more you could unite people around a common cause, which oftentimes might be based on a common villain uh, or a, a principle of, of heroism that, that you want everyone to, to partake in, a journey that you want them all to go on, the bigger those things are, and the government certainly feels like a giant in the room, then the more people you can actually activate and they're gonna feel more involved. They're gonna feel more like they're part of your organization, like they're part of making change that they already care about if they're supporting you in the first place. So it's a it's a win-win-win. So, and the best, I probably should have given examples from the school um, of what advocacy can look like. And uh, probably a number one tool that I forgot to add or forgot to share was invite them into your space, right? So in Connecticut, there's an anti-charter movement. And to this day, Muskan, I've been working for a charter school for over close to seven years now or over six years now. And I'll be the first one to say, I am not a charter school supporter. I love my school. I love what our school does. But that is not indicative of the overall charter movement. Um, and I think if more schools acted like us, I would be probably a bigger fan of charter schools. But that's not what it is. I also think there's significant issues with um, district schools or traditional public schools, as we would call them. I think the, it was going to be inequity and in how we fund them is, is, is broken, period. It's broken. Like the, the fact that students in Greenwich have more money per student than the students in Bridgeport is not, you can't argue that. And that is fundamentally wrong. And at this point, when we have, when we're all learning from home and our kids are learning from home, the access to technology is creating an even greater disparity. Uh, Darien and New Canaan have had computers literally the next day for their, their children. And in Stanford and in Bridgeport and in Middletown, my own hometown, we still don't have uh, have computers for all of our children, right? So when I was first doing the work, even as, as someone myself who wasn't thrilled about working for a charter school per se, um, you have to take the, how do you take that charter out? Like what things can we agree on? So when we were doing our initial engagement with the mayor, with our board of education, with the state legislators, it was come to our school. So don't come to Stanford Charter School for Excellence. Come to Stanford Excellence, right? Just come, just come to our school. I want you to when you walk in, I want you to see that it's warm and welcoming. I want you to see the the banners of all the different colleges that we're inspiring our scholars, our, our children, our students to see from the very beginning. I want you to come and see our kindergartners read, right? Um, I want you to see that our teachers, they're not charter school teachers, they're teachers, right? I want you to see Mr. Fisher, our principal, who's not a charter school principal. He's a principal. He's Mr. Fisher. He's someone that absolutely loves kids, will fight for kids harder than I've ever seen anyone fight for. That's what I want you to see, right? I want you to, at, um, in, our, in our sacred reading block, I want you to see that all of our children are reading from pre-K to fifth grade. I want you to ask, I want you to walk into the room and, and, and sit on the rug with the kids um, and sit crisscross applesauce like everyone else. You have to, you have, I want you to, to feel it, see it, experience it. And then I'm going to ask you, how do you want to help? Um, and the ability to help, once again, is a, it's a very empowering uh, channel for both sides. But, you, but, you, but inviting people into your space so they can see it for themselves, experience it, smell it, see it, hear it, feel it, everything. 
that's that's what real advocacy looks like. And yeah. it also and it takes away from the talking points, right? Um, so now it's now we can talk about children. We can talk about students as we talk about funding. So before when we were talking about funding, it was just like esoteric. Well, it's a hundred million dollars or six hundred thousand dollars here. Well, no, you just saw Junior continue to read, so it's going to cost this much money for Junior to read. Do you want Junior to continue to read, or do you not want Junior to continue to read? It's, I mean, at that point, it's a very it's a very different question. Um, it's a lot easier to talk about. Do you want Junior to read, or do we want this line item on the budget in a one hundred two hundred page document? not including fine print. That's not a fair conversation to have. That's also not a conversation that constituents can have because they don't know, that's not their job. My job is to be a parent, right? My job is to make sure that my kid has the best education that they can have. So I just need you to see that my child can read, that my child is doing math, that my third grader is talking about, I want to go to Yale one day, or I want to go to MIT one day. I need you to hear that. Um, So then we can have a real true dynamic discussion about the people behind the money. Yeah, it's similar to what you were saying earlier about sharing your story with your representatives and talking specifically from your experience. It's taking it out of the abstract and making it into an individual, relatable person that makes all the difference. And that's a huge aspect of storytelling in, in general. You know, you want to tell your own story as a nonprofit. You want to tell the stories of your heroes. If you can bring people into your space, fantastic. Right now, all spaces are a little challenging, but a lot of organizations they don't have a school to bring people into to see Johnny, but you can still bring Johnny's story to the representatives, to people in government. So go, I can go back to Mark, the with Loris's organization. So in times of COVID, they asked me to come to their space. If I come to their space, they have a home that they um, that they manage and run, and I was able to teach the um, their consumers how to make pancakes. Now. One, I'm not, well, I'm actually a pretty good chef. I'm a terrible pancake maker. But even in the process of explaining what, like what dish to make, right? Um, I was like, okay, well, I was like, oh, good. I'm going to make a really fancy, like all this sort of stuff. And then the CEO was like, Q, our consumers don't have access to these sort of resources. I was like, oh, yeah. And these, our consumers um, might not be able to buy these ingredients. And securing these ingredients would be a little tough. So, yeah, duh, right? So that was a way to get their state representative to understand what they are going through from day to day, right? Still build that connection. It's because I still got it. And I got to be in front of them to, to was going to kind of build my brand and, and model and show um, that we have a relationship, but it was, um, once again, it was a transformative experience to be able to understand what they are going through day to day. And okay, now wait a second. If I have opportunities for this, what would it take for them to have those same opportunities to be able to what I, what I thought was a fairly simple dish like fried chicken or steak or whatever what I said I wanted to make, um, but if they don't if they can't do that, is there a way to empower their community to do so? Um, and let's have those conversations. And that's what's going to by a simple invitation of saying, "Hey, I want you to cook a dish for for our consumers." Dude, this is already the longest episode I've had, and I feel like we can go on for another couple of hours. Uh, this is all awesome stuff and great stories. You're, you are a natural storyteller, and it's fantastic because it really helps bring to life, just like we've been talking about, all of these specific things. Uh, I don't want to take up your entire day, and um, I do want to talk, though, about a couple of things. So first of all, uh, I ask everybody for a tool or a resource that they recommend to nonprofits and nonprofit leaders. You mentioned the Situational Leader by Paul Hersey. 
why why that book? What what's that about? Um, because I guess you I even after being 15 years out of Bryant, um, I still take a business approach and business lens to a lot of uh the work that I do. So situational leadership essentially is a framework for how to solve a problem um, with people. It's a people-oriented solution. And essentially says, um, does someone want to do the, the, the task at hand or do they not want to do it? And can they do it or can't they do it? And depending on where they fall in that sort of quadrant, like I can and I want to, it's very different than someone that says I don't want to and I can't or I want to and I can't. You have to work with those folks very differently. So I think that example is with any of our constituencies in, time, in terms of advocacy. Um, you're going to have folks that say, I really want to talk to my state rep. I don't know their number. I don't know what to say. Oh, I can teach you that if you if you want to. Now, if you say, I want, I, I, I know how. I know their number. As a matter of fact, I played golf with them all the time, but I don't want to talk to them. Okay, well, now we have a very different discussion, right? So situational leadership helps create a framework for how you can go about working with people depending on where they're at. And I use it all the time. And I even will say, well, it sounds like you don't want to do this. Right? <laughs> I want to know why. And or you sound like you want to, but we still haven't done it yet. Why is that? And you can, we work, you work through those. So I, I, I love it. Love it. I'm going to, I'm teaching a class at UHart in the fall and I'm definitely going to get our students to read that or at least part of it. Are you familiar with the fog behavioral model? No, not really. It sounds very, very similar um, because what it says is behavior equals motivation plus ability plus prompt. Yeah. So if you want someone to do something, they have to be motivated to do it or motivated enough. It has to be easy enough. The, the ability has to be easy enough for them to achieve it. And then you need to prompt them to do it in the first place. And uh, uh, yeah. That translates directly into what you were talking about. So if they're not so motivated, you got to increase the motivation. But between the three things, like if it's super easy, you don't have to be that motivated, right? This is why like picking up the phone and calling versus just sending an email. For a lot of people, it'll be easier to send an email, right? Um, so between those three, the, the motivation, the ability, and the prompt, like if someone keeps prompting you, if you've got an alarm going off every five minutes saying, call, 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 eventually you're going you're gonna to do it. Totally. Even if it's uh, got greater friction and, and harder to do in the first place. It sounds like a great book. I'm going to add it to uh, my Audible list. I, I keep getting great suggestions and um, I'm almost caught up on all my credits. <laughs> I still got some room. Uh, Q, what should people do? What should nonprofit leaders uh, that are watching or listening to the show, what should they do next? Should they get? In, how should they get in touch with you? Or what should they do to start taking action in their own organizations? Awesome. So I'll do the um, how to reach me first. Um, so one, please go to my website, the C my Connecticut General Assembly website page. If you just do CGA Q Phipps P H I P P S, I'll come right up at the bottom of it. You can find um, my email list. Great way to get information. Um, two, I am a power user of Facebook. I am a wicked um, Gen Y person, so. Um, I missed the, the bonuses from Gen X from when I graduated college, um, but not quite as young as the, the new millennials and like the TikTok stuff, right? So Facebook is something like power use. Um, I don't have enough room on the personal side anymore, but um, there's two pages you can follow me on. So the one is my official state representative page. That one's fun to, or that one's more informative and or informative in the traditional sense. Um, but there's a, a Quint, uh, Quentin Q. Phipps, which is uh, like a political page and it's, it is partisan, um, but that's a lot more just who I am. So 
I would encourage you to follow or like those pages. You can also reach me on Twitter um, at QUEWP1. And matter of fact, if you use at QUEWP1, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, most email addresses. If you do Gmail, Hotmail, MSN, like all of them will all go to me, uh, but use the Gmail one because that's the only one I really check regularly. Um, but follow me on those sort of things. You can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn fairly regularly also. Um, and as I said, I give everyone my cell phone number. So it's going to put it out in the real world again. It's 860-830-5407. That is the same exact number that my wife uses to give me a call and, or text me. If you want to give me a call, feel free to give me a call too there. I can vouch that, that works. I have called Cube on that phone and he does pick up. Um, we, we'll have all of those things linked uh, in our episode show notes, uh, which people could find at nphero.factory.com slash EP episode 11. Um, and we'll have the, the book linked. We'll have all this stuff as well as uh, the transcript, the takeaways, all of this. I hope people do follow up. I really appreciate everything that you've shared. I feel like it's a topic that does not get enough attention, but desperately should be getting more attention and, and utilized the strategies that you're talking about. So cute. Thank you so much for joining us oh, today. Thank you for this opportunity. And I hope I could have you back sometime soon to keep talking about all these different things. You, know and I was like, you, you could tell I love to talk. So like, I was like, oh, yeah. oh, 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 maybe as the election approaches, we'll have uh, even more things to talk about. Totally. Uh, but uh, until then, uh, you and I, I'm sure we'll be in touch and I hope others get in touch with you too. Thank all you. Right. Have a great day. You too, my friend. Godspeed. Thank you all for watching and listening to the Nonprofit Hero Factory. We hope this episode has given you some ideas and strategies for creating more heroes for your cause and a better world for all of us. Please be sure to subscribe to this show on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And let us know what you think by leaving a review.